Hi, this is Karen Harvey, and you're listening to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio. It's the thing that binds every single person in this team together is everybody has a story. Maybe it's them, maybe it's their mother, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's just the idea of doing something, but it is the reason that we all get up in the morning. It is the thing that guides every tough decision. I always say to Holly that the greatest gift I ever could have been given as a leader is a brand with a mission because when I'm not sure what to do, I say, well, okay, why are we here? We're here to eradicate skin cancer and to change the way the world thinks about sunscreen. And every decision, if you believe that, is obvious. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to share my conversation with Amanda Baldwin, CEO of Supergoop, an extraordinary purpose-driven brand that puts the protection of our skin and our bodies at the forefront of everything they do. Amanda is an inspiring example of a truly modern leader, someone who is driven by two primary passions, her inherent connection to the brand's mission and benefiting the greater good, and her unwavering commitment to empowering and mentoring her team. It's this combination of her humble and selfless approach to leadership that I appreciated the most about Amanda, as I believe that herein lies the essence of what will make future leaders holistically successful. And I also believe that these are the key ingredients that will allow them to develop and take winning brands into the future. There is a unique kind of energy that is created in companies led by women we're building on a truly authentic purpose. And through our conversation today, I think you will experience what this kind of energy and leadership can create for a culture and how it can serve as a platform for a brand's growth and success. Amanda is impressive on multiple levels as she was born and raised to think of others and to recognize that her good fortune should be shared. Therefore, after starting her career in investment banking, she decided to seek a role with a company that was founded on an authentic purpose and mission, which indeed focused on benefiting the greater good. When she met Holly, the founder of Supergoop, everything connected. Holly had launched the brand after a close friend was diagnosed with skin cancer at a very young age, and the mission and potential for the brand resonated with Amanda immediately. Today, Supergoop is on a mission to reduce the instances of skin cancer caused by the sun's harmful UV rays. At the time of recording this conversation in the height of the summer months, I found myself out at the beach as I am every year, spending long days in and out of the sun where protection is essential and top of mind. What I hadn't thought about before, but I learned during this conversation with Amanda, is that the blue light from our computers can also be very harmful, which most of us don't know or even think about. This is one of the many reasons while talking with Amanda that I found myself feeling grateful to her, Holly, and the Supergoop teams for creating this multi-purpose, beautiful brand that helps us look and feel more beautiful while living a long and healthy life. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and thanks, as always, for your support. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me in my home studio today and your instant home studio as well. So I, I really am so excited to have you with me today. And, you know, the mom in me always wants to understand how, you know, people sort of grew up and what the environment and the conditions were. Can you talk a little bit about I know you grew up in New York, right? I did, born and raised a native. So can you tell me a little bit about what that was like? I grew up on East End Avenue, um, which is kind of out of the fray for anybody who's been over there. Probably people haven't because that's the point. <laughs> and so I, it felt a lot smaller. Um, New York felt a lot smaller. And my whole world was kind of East End Avenue to Madison Avenue where I went to school. And I think the upper boundary was my father was a doctor at Mount Sinai on 98th Street. And I don't think I ever made it south of Bloomingdale. So my New York was very small. I think I grew up with some of the best parts of New York City and, and the museums and the culture and the crossroads of people. But I also grew up without probably the sort of 
pace of New York City that a lot of people automatically associate with the childhood here. You know, how did I learn to not expect anything? I think it was, you know, I'd have to give my parents 100% credit for that. I think that from a very early age, they, I don't think there was ever explicit lessons, but implicit lessons about you work hard for everything that you get, that nothing is handed to you on a silver platter. So don't expect it. You know, they gave up everything to give my brother and sister, and I'm the oldest of three. We can certainly talk about birth order. I'm a classic yeah, yeah. oldest child. I'm in the middle of three. So. Okay, so there we go. Um, I'm a classic oldest child. Yeah. From a very early age, I just never, I knew that I was going to work hard for anything that was ever going to come my way that was very ingrained in me. And I also remember fifth grade, my mother taking me to work at a food pantry and her just sort of immediately putting me in an environment where I realized really how lucky I was. And, you know, I was going to an amazing private school on the Upper East Side and and she made the effort to make sure that I knew that that wasn't normal, um, that that was a great gift. And I would also give Spence a huge amount of credit in that, you know, I went there for 13 years and the motto of that school is not for school, but for life we learned. And I repeated that every day for 13 years. And and that sticks with you, right? I mean, they actually had you speak those words. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was, was, I think we, you know, we had, it was in the school song, it was a motto. um, And it was ingrained in everything that we were taught was, you're here and you should do well academically and everything, but that that's not the point. The point is to take it and do something with it. And so those are the things that definitely, you know, immediately come to mind for me about kind of why. And what do your siblings do? So my younger brother is an architect. So I come from... And your mother is an architect also, right? No, my mother was a public, you know, publishing before ah, she had children. Okay. My father's a doctor, but both sides of my family have a lot of really creative artistic genes. And I think it's why I ended up in a creative field because I had an inclination to it. It's just that my brother got actually all the skills. Um, And my sister is a partner at McKinsey. So we both are in the retail industry. So there is something that obviously was sort of threaded through all of us about aesthetics and design and creativity. And where did you go after Spence? I went to Harvard undergrad. So oh, I that's made it, right. Of made course it up you did. north. Yeah. 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 Had an amazing experience there and, you know, still stay very connected. You know, it's it's funny when you look back on these things, it all looks completely planned and it definitely wasn't. <laughs> right. But I, I studied political theory and design and consumer. That's where I kind of figured out that you could study consumer behavior, that I wasn't just fascinated with it. I'd always been really interested in it. And I walked around the streets of New York and the first job I ever wanted was to design shop windows and sort of, I guess, I guess it was a merchant, I think is what I I must've thought I wanted to be. Didn't know the word for it, but I was always wondering, you know, gee, why is it that all of a sudden the gap is really popular? And I wrote my college thesis on the gap and why I thought it was really popular. What did you ascertain there? What was your thesis? My thesis was that I graduated from college in the sort of boom, boom days of the Gap khaki ads and the swing and all those things. And I did semiotic analysis of all of the advertisements and basically came up with a theory that what the Gap did really well was help you know, define that sort of American identity of individualism meets community. And I think it's probably a really interesting topic that's still very relevant today. And that, you know, the, there's something in our country that's, you know, cowboys and pioneers and going places that nobody, you know, entrepreneurs and betting on yourself, but that we're all human and that we all need each other. Mm -hmm. There was a campaign they did. And I I remember one of them was Sarah Jessica Parker in a white shirt, right? Everybody was wearing the exact same white shirt, but the point was you were an individual in that white shirt. And so, you know, I think great branding and great marketing, figure out how to match a brand with just the cultural zeitgeist and something very, very embedded in how we're processing our humanity. And that was my theory, was that that was why The Gap was doing so well, because it had figured out how to convince people that wearing khakis in a white button down was sort of the ultimate display of individuality. And unity. So that's and really, unity. at that the same actually, time, balance that. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my favorite ads, and I, I'm a lot older than you, I remember very well having these discussions with those leading The Gap at the time. And you know, it was such a beautiful period. So 
What did you do with all that after after college? I went to Wall Street, <laughs> um, I, which actually all it, it, there was a reason for it. It might seem like, gosh, how did you go from advertising to Wall Street? But I I fell in love with business in in undergrad, and it was actually it's a whole long a whole another side story about how that happened. But I I figured, okay, well, how am I going to get the fundamentals? Because I knew nothing. And I got hired at Goldman Sachs as an investment banking analyst. And I went there and had an amazing period of time. Without an MBA. This is before. This is before. Right? Yeah. Oh, I, I had literally never opened Excel when I showed up. <laughs> I, and, and they were willing to hire people like that. So kudos to them so on that. Smart. Um, yes, yeah. So and smart. the theory was like, okay, you're smart. You'll figure it out. And I still, you know, I still think the way that I was taught to think. And so even though I have this love of creativity and design, I'm still running every decision through a spreadsheet because I was taught how a business operates and how all the numbers fit together and what P&L and cash flow and balance sheet means and how all the best ideas in the world were meaningless if those three things didn't hang together. So I can kind of go both ways. And that's what I love about the beauty industry and love about what I do is the balance of those two factors in in my life every day. I mean, it's incredible that you say that because... Later on, I certainly want to talk to you about that very thing, which is, you know, everybody talks about, look, a great idea is 10% of everything. 90%, of course, is execution. And however you think about those percentages, the operating metrics and the ability to drive toward those. And I would say today, an empowerful business model and really believing in that business model combined with obviously a really, really extraordinary idea is kind of the method and the magic of it all. Do you agree with that, by the way? A hundred percent. Every time I talk to you, I feel like somebody's been, you know, you've been dropped out of the sky and just, it's my own head speaking back to me. It's amazing. (laughs) That's incredible. Thank you. Um, So before we get to that stuff, what made you decide to go to Wharton? Did they kind of say it Goldman Sachs, now it's time for you to do that? Or? Yeah, there was a step in between. I went at, at the end of two years in Goldman, the analyst program, I went to be an associate at a private equity firm. I was sort of doing the formulaic thing you were supposed to do and getting all the, the background and the education. So I actually went to a firm where I did all consumer retail investing. And that's where I was got really into the industry from a business point of view. When I was a banker, I was actually doing media and telecom. I just want to say to everybody out there, this is the woman who would walk down the street and wonder what was going on with the windows mm-hmm. in shops and then probably forgot about that and went to Goldman Sachs and then you found your way back to that. So I just had to say, like, really interesting. I will say as an investment banking analyst, I knew that I was going to probably end up doing something else because I loved designing anything I could get my hands on. So you know, I've always sort of believed in a career. It's like test, learn, iterate until you get it right. And so I, there was so much that I loved about it. But what I was craving was something more creative. Um, getting back into the consumer space made a huge difference. And the turning point for me was when I was the associate on a deal where PVH was buying Calvin Klein. I was supposed to be there running the model, right? Figuring out how the two companies were going to merge and all the things... Where I found my joy was when I would be following around the designers and the and we did the brand work and I you know I had this all my you know twenty two year old opinions or twenty three year old opinions about what to do with the Calvin Klein brand and what it was and how well defined it was and and then I sort of woke up and I said well maybe I'm on the wrong side of the table uh, maybe I should go do that or at least see what that's all about and and that's what led me back to business school was a career switch, I think they call them, from finance into more of an operating role and did a lot of research on what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. But that deal was the thing that changed my mind. So the designer in you met at Wharton, met the sort of, you know, we used to say the right brain, left brain, and there's all kinds of research. I don't know if that exists, but metaphorically met the other side of you that wanted to probably understand how to make something like that, right? So what was Wharton like for you? Did you go to the Baker, the Baker School? The Baker program had just started and I found it on the Wharton website, kind of buried underneath everything. 
And I was like, okay, this makes sense to me. And I was looking for a program that really could allow me, I felt like I needed something very specific that would help me make this transition, um, set resources behind it. And I think I was one of the first few students who, uh, and I'm still, I sit on the director's council, I'm still super involved and it's been probably my one of my most important ties back to the school. Now it's much more known for cranking out amazing consumer brands and great marketers and things like that. But at the time, it was very, from the outside finance, and you know, and I came from finance, so I, I spoke that language, but I was totally swimming in the wrong direction in that school. So I was, you know, I was sitting there saying, no, actually, I want to leave private equity and go into beauty. And people looked at me like I had three heads and I still am kind of marveled that I did it. You know, up to that point, I had been, you know, the person that had always done what I was supposed to and done well in school and gone to the right schools and, you know, had these amazing opportunities. I'd never, I've learned over time, I'm a much bigger risk taker than I ever thought I was. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with my heart. And I, I turned down some pretty big, amazing jobs to go start my journey in the beauty industry at the bottom of the totem pole at Clinique. And I'll, you know, I'll never forget those years. And I'm, again, I'm so imprinted by that brand and and how meaningful it was to me and and the people that I worked with. But yeah, I said, I turned it all down and I just said, I'm going to go, go see what this is like. And I remember my first day as an intern at Clinique and meeting a woman who is still a mentor of mine and thinking, oh, I finally found my people. The language they're speaking here. I was fluent. I was a native. It made sense to me in a way that I love finance and I love investing, but it was, it was a different, it was like a second language. This was my native language. That's in a period in in time where you were part of what I would say the first mini wave of people who entered, you know, beauty always had more MBAs or people coming out of let's say CPG, where you might have had an MBA, very few coming out of finance at the time, but certainly people coming out of business school where in fashion, it barely existed at the time. There was a tiny little, just a tiny little crack that I was able to squeeze through, but I didn't tell anyone I had an MBA. I didn't tell anyone I had worked on Wall Street, God forbid, right? I really just kind of push that out of, you know, I obviously was there, but it was not a part of who I was. It was obviously part of how I was thinking about things, but that was not why I was there. In fact, it probably made it 10 times harder for me to get the job in the first place because I literally was asked in a meeting, you know, so what is this Goldman Sachs thing? It was the most humbling and best thing that probably could have happened to me because I had to prove that I knew how to get my hands dirty and run a business and how to listen to people. And it's a whole different skill set that it requires to be successful at what I'm what I'm doing now. Again, they're they're related, but I couldn't draw on the same things that had, had made me successful up to that point in my life. And I love that that didn't daunt you. You know, one of the things our community, as you know, is pretty engaged and it's not like we have this huge community, but our stats are super smart people motivated, curious, some at that stage in their career where they're really thinking about next and some who are incredibly accomplished. But I think, and maybe it's because of what I do in the rest of my companies for a living, but I think people really look to understand how people follow their dreams versus, as you said, sort of the expected and you know, what what were those sort of pivot points? And when I think about, had you taken one of those big banking jobs or investment banking jobs, on the surface, you would have seen all the people that would have been more like you, you would think. But actually, you felt more like you, except probably when people said, well, what is that investment banking thing? Like, what makes you qualified for this? But can you say a little more about that? Because I think our audience really cares about that. I've always said, listen to your heart, it never lies. And I try to always remember that. Sometimes it's easier than other times. But I think you have to, I think you have to sometimes really listen. I think that there were moments in business school where the noise got really loud um, and the pressures of what other people were doing or the fact that most people in their second year already had their job locked up before the semester even started. And there I was in March and hanging on by a thread and had all this 
debt that I was going to have to pay and I didn't have a job and I just kept on calling up Estee Lauder, please, please, you know, I really, really want to come back. And and eventually they said yes, but it took a lot of, it took, I had to turn down so many things and take so many chances just to hold out. Mm-hmm. But I think I kind of knew at that point that that was my one chance to make a shift and that if I didn't do it, then, you know, most things, I do think as you get older, things become less reversible, but at that moment in time, I could always go back to finance. I, I kind of, I certainly knew that. So I, I had that benefit that if I was, if I didn't do the right thing for myself at that moment, I could always reverse it. But yeah, I do, I do remember it quite vividly. <laughs> and and what year was that that you? Two thousand six, I graduated. So you went to Lauder, and then you must have been recruited by LVMH, right? You went to Dior. Yeah, the, some former Lauder execs went to Dior. <laughs> And what was that like? Oh, gosh, amazing. I mean, both of those experiences, every day at Supergoop, I think about what did I learn at Clinique? What did I learn at Dior? What did I learn about how, like, what a real brand is? You know, iconography, how do you create great product? How do you stand for something? I learned from some of the most iconic leaders in my industry, and I would just, I would just sit and watch and listen and absorb, and it's, the thing that I want the most for the next generation is is to have those experiences and why I think Zoom doesn't quite cut it. Me too. I was always interested in what could be done differently and I wasn't afraid of that. And people gave me amazing chances to say, well, Clinique has always done this, but what if we tried that? Or by the way, we're going to launch Facebook at Dior and I'm just going to open up an account and see what happens. And I was so lucky to be given that because I think the thing that I did learn from those experiences is actually how entrepreneurial I am and how much I'm driven to changing the way that things are um, and not taking the past as the predictor of the future. So I kind of got the best of both worlds. I think I kind of saw what real longevity means. I mean, I always tell this story to my team that at LVMH, you know, the average age of a brand is 150 years. So, you know, you make different decisions when you're thinking that way. Um, And I think not enough decisions are made that way um, around brands. And so those two institutions are just, I'm forever indebted to them. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Facebook. So I think Instagram was launched in like 2011 or something. So Facebook really wasn't a thing for very long by then. It was about 2008 when, yeah, when I had joined your and started it, yes. Yeah, because that's right in the middle of the big recession, obviously. And so many innovations came after the the recession, particularly from the technology side. I mean, I think like Mm -hmm. Uber was launched. I talk about this a lot right after the recession. And is that sort of why you joined El Catterton? Every decision because of career twist has been some sort of interesting inbound phone call uh, that leads to something I never expected. And But of course, also just for a moment to explain to the audience, El Catterton is the partnership between Catterton Partners and LVMH. It is now, but it was only Catterton when I joined, actually. So the merger had not yet happened. Ah, okay. Catterton, you know, at the time and still is, you know, one of the leading the leading consumer investment funds. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we go back, rewind the story, right, I've, I come out of that world and I still love that world. And so here was somebody saying, well, you get to, I was on the operating team. So, you know, you get to be with the businesses, but you get to be with the businesses as an investor. And that to me was like, okay, so now you're going to tell me I'm going to combine everything that I love into one job. That sounds great. And what was interesting at the time was also there was this sort of mega and still, right, digital revolution and and the whole shift in the way that the game was being played. And Catterton was and still is investing in this sort of next generation of brands. And I thought that that was really neat. And that was sort of the the complement to having learned from these brands that were, you know, amazing institutions and already big and global. I kind of like lived in the house and then the assignment was to go build the house. And that was a really exciting thing for me. And so that's kind of the story and the reason why I decided to make that leap. That's an incredible full circle because, of course, 
I think some people think, well, this was all planned. And I think you mentioned earlier. None of it was planned. (laughs) No. No. But it does make me want to say to people to kind of trust your, that heart, that really to listen to that. If you do put your head down and you do deliver and people believe in you, they see your path before sometimes one might see one's own path. I think it's really important to have a big idea and a very clear sense of what you love. But I think you have to be really open-minded to how you're going to get there because I think that the world changes really quickly. And, you know, when I graduated from business school, Facebook didn't exist. The internet barely exists. There was no Shopify. There really was no Amazon. So if you said you wanted a career in consumer, it was a very different looking career than it is today. And I saw those changes happening and I said, I can either watch them or I can go be a part of them. And so I I never sort of felt stubborn about, okay, well, my master plan was X, I can't. The, the true north has always been the same, but how I'm getting at it has evolved a lot. And I think I've tried to be really open-minded to what's presented itself along the way and not actually be afraid to say, well, this totally, I, I thought I was going to stay in a large corporation my whole career. And that that's what life looked like. And, you know, and I could certainly see myself going back to that world, but at the time the, the road is curving this way and I better get on that curve because that's how I'm going to learn the most. I think I've always been really motivated by, you know, as I said, what's next, what's new, what's different and where am I going to learn the most? So that draws me to these things that are kind of sitting on the edge of, of what's changing. This is like brilliant career advice, you know, have the big idea, know what you love and what you want to do, but don't be stubborn about how to get there. And what I would add to that is don't believe that, you know, one knows the way to get there. You haven't done it yet. Yeah. So, and I say this all the time, so be open and, you know, really follow what is presented. If it speaks to you in terms of getting you closer, I guess, to that, to that vision, that personal vision. It's fascinating. Absolutely. And then this whole idea of your generation of graduates came at such an incredibly interesting time, stepping into a recession. So many, I think, just had to sort of do anything in order to pay their debt. Others sort of found their way. You were pre- recession, obviously, but certainly it happened just a few years later. But again, it was when technology really sort of melded with consumer centricity and created that opportunity for consumers to engage directly with brands and for smart leaders leading brands to be able to say, this is something. The, the traditional marketing book playbook was thrown out the window sort of right right in front of me. And quite honestly, I think we're throwing it out the window again, whatever the first version of it was. So, you know, we're on to the whatever 2.0 of, of digital. And I think we're all living right now through what I remember feeling at the time where these social media networks were popping up and there's this I don't think we called them influencer. I think bloggers maybe was the bloggers. You know, was bloggers. the right was the yeah. term. And all of a sudden there was digital media to buy and all these interesting things and search and what was that? And now there's a whole new toolkit um, that's emerging. And and I think it will maybe not replace 100 percent what existed before, but I feel really excited as I'm, I'll always be a marketer about like, oh, okay, well, now there's all these new toys. How are we going to figure out what these are good for and how to how to play around with them and what's going to stick around of the things that that we've all kind of, it's not even digital marketing anymore, right? This is marketing. And then what's this new wave and what's that going to look like, I think is one of the most exciting things that's happening right now. Yeah, I have so many questions for you around that. And before going there, did... Supergoop land on your desk as an investor? It landed on my on my desk from a recruiter. You know, back to career advice, always say yes to any invitation to talk to anybody. And it was somebody that I had met eight years before and had breakfast with. And then, then it was the right time and I was rolling off in an assignment and I really, really always dreamed of actually getting to run a business. And here's my shot at that. So yeah, recruiter, (laughs) someone who I will be forever indebted to. 
Where was the company then? It was a brilliant idea, an incredible vision, some great product, great brand DNA, and a shelf in 100 Sephoras. And that's what it was. And the rest we've built from there together and the team and the marketing strategy and the growth. And we barely had a website at that time, um, which many people don't know. Many people think, oh, Supergoop's this digital DTC native brand. Um, that tells me I'm marketing effectively, but we we go much deeper than that. Um, and I think of a brand that will transcend generations, geographies, you know, all sorts of things. So it has just like an amazing history in and of itself. So it's a special one. So you add another thing to your um, incredible kind of skill set, if you will, which is working with a founder. So what was it like when you first met Holly? I actually met her brother first. So he did screening. And, you know, he's actually a wonderful part of the Supergroup story as well. You know, I passed that test and I went to, um, we have a thing at Supergroup where interviewing is often done over meals. And I think it's because we have a very sort of warm, you know, this is a family and it's about the human and who you're sitting at the nerder table or the breakfast table with. So we had breakfast and Holly sat down and I don't think she had even sat down. And Holly is close to six feet. She's very tall. She looked at me and she said, well, what do you think about drama? And I said, oh goodness, this is a trick question. And I looked at her and I said, I don't even know how to be, be dramatic. And I guess it was the right answer. And I think the, the reason that she asked that and the reason that I tell the story is because there are so many crazy stories of founders and CEOs and not getting along and all sorts of stuff. And I think she wanted to get that on the table first there's many secrets to our success, but I think it's just because both of us just want to win. We so passionately believe in this. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else is a distraction. And, and we have just such a deep love and admiration for each other. And just like the rest is just cleared out of the way. So one of my life goals is to see some sort of case study written about the two of us, because I think it's it's a really amazing thing to watch when you you pair two people that are so incredibly aligned in what they're trying to achieve, but so wildly different in how they're going to achieve it. And then we both get out of each other's way and and do our thing and come back together when we need to. And I don't know, it's a, it's an amazing thing. It really is incredible. I um, have witnessed this many, many times, many, many times over the years working and so many times over the years it not working. And it is magical when this this happens. And when someone like Holly can see in the person across the table that this person could be game-changing uh, for bringing their idea to life, and they can step away when needed. And as trust really gains and, and grows, it is magical. And you've obviously proven that. I know that the concept was born I think, out of a friend of Holly's who had gotten skin cancer quite young. And I'm thinking a lot about empathy. And as Maya and I have been talking about, empathy is our sort of overarching, let's say, thematically, our, the through line for how we want to think about growing businesses and you know, leaders, finding leaders and creating new things. This was a brand, it seems, born out of empathy, pain, and the desire to solve a problem. Yes, 100%. Purpose and mission before it was something that anyone was talking about. Yeah. And the thing for me, when I start thinking about the companies I work with today, that are scrambling to find a purpose because they know that their teams, it's critical for them to feel like they're coming to work every day, whether it's to work at home or to work at their office or whatever it is. In as much as it seems that, that Supergoop was really born out of what I think is one of the most important kind of ways of being in the world for everyone, this thing called empathy, pain, and the desire to solve a problem. What has it been like to create a product that actually enables you to 
potentially, and I, I don't know if you think about it this way, but I'm just going to say what I'm thinking, save lives. Like, do you, do you wake up and think about that most days? I mean, or do you forget about it and feel jaded and then you come back and you're like, oh yeah. Never forget about it. Never forget about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many things running through my head because, you know, for me, one of the more pivotal experiences of my life was when I was at Goldman was when 9-11 happened. And I ended up working as the analyst for the vice chairman at the time on a relief effort after 9-11. And I watched this wonderful man walk around and take the power that he had as a business person to create good. And there I was at age 21. I looked at him and I was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be somebody who can take their business skills and and do something good for the world. And it was a, it was a huge part of why I joined this brand. It's the thing that binds every single person in this team together is everybody has a story. Maybe it's them, maybe it's their mother, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's just the idea of doing something. But it is the reason that we all get up in the morning. It is the thing that guides every tough decision. I always say to Holly that the greatest gift I ever could have been given as a leader is a brand with a mission because when I'm not sure what to do, I say, well, okay, why are we here? We're here to eradicate skin cancer and change the way the world thinks about sunscreen. And every decision, if you believe that, is obvious. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but it's obvious. The fact that it helps in marketing, I actually think is the last thing in some ways, right? It's like, of course, I think it's amazing that the world now values brands that have purpose and expects that. And I'm so proud of of what's happened in my industry that I love, that it's sort of taking on this whole other sense of responsibility that we all have. But in some ways as a leader, it's what it means to me and to my team that I think is really where the biggest payback is. And it's funny, it brings back a memory of me writing my thesis that we talked about. And, you know, a lot of consumer research was about, you know, there was a lot of sort of theories about how consumerism was evil, right? And and that was sort of this, you know, very... Um, I grew you know, up in that right? generation. Like sort of a, yes. That if you bought things, you know, and I think like this idea that that business and product and brand can actually be for the greater good and business can be a source of change. And that I think is something that's hitting a whole new stride that I'm really excited about. And I feel like, ah, oh, you know, that that moment that I had now is coming to fruition. I understand why why this industry can help me achieve that. It won't be, you know, and I actually love doing nonprofit work on the side, but that if I can actually do that day in, day out, and the thing that I spend my most most of my time on, then that's pretty amazing. So it's everything to us. I have so many things to say to that, but the biggest thing that comes up for me when I hear that is I believe that the private sector that business can do so much good. And I have been on the board of a couple of foundations and non-for-profits and more than a couple. And what I've always come back to is we need to engage the private sector. We need to learn and understand how to move fast to solve a problem. You know, applying all of the skills that we learn in running companies. And if we use those things to solve big problems, and we already see it in action, that the marriage of those things, if they are done well, is the future. So your mom took you to a food pantry when you were young. Do you think that people can be taught empathy? Or do you think this is a question I'm going to be asking lots of brilliant leaders, or do you think they have to be born with it? I think as humans, we're born with it. I think you can cultivate it maybe, but I think we're all born with it. I agree a hundred percent. Thank you for that. And can you give an example of, you know, when those hard weeks came or come that you have to make certain decisions where you return to why you're here, a decision gets made versus you go left instead of going right? So many of them. And I, th- I think, you know, on its most basic level, probably April of last year when 
when things were really hard, you just kind of had to motivate people to figure out how to do something that maybe wasn't going to be a sprint and a marathon or a hike up a hill that we didn't know how high that hill was. And I think I always came back to that. And I think people found sort of grounding in that. So I think it's just, it's a lot of the things about just every day. I think it guides us in product development decisions that we make. I think it guides us in distribution decisions that we make. You know, everything is about that. And I think it's sort of hard to even give one example because it's embedded in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. But I think we're very clear that sunscreen is our gift to the world. And so it also helps us stay really focused. I think sometimes a year like this year can be overwhelming and you also can want to take on everything. And I think we've realized, you know, that what we can do for this world is to create sunscreen, you know, create SPF for all. We have sort of a an anchor. You know, the focus that comes with it is really powerful because I think with focus, you can also create change. So if you really want to move the needle at something, you have to stay actually kind of narrow in how you're going to go after it and let everybody sort of play their role, right? I mean, I think we all as a business community have different roles to play in in the important changes that are happening in our world. And so we're all going to be much more successful if we all do the thing that we are differentially good at doing. That is a subtle difference, but a brilliantly put stay in our lane and play in the sandbox really well with people who are in theirs and really build that as a company. It's like you see it in a company, you see it in individuals. It's like great team is like this sort of infinite respect for like, wow, that person is just so good at that. We're going to banter around all the places that we overlap, but then, you know, we're going to go and do what we do best and what we find the most joy in. And I think a lot of building a team is about that balance between, you know, having every voice at the table and also voices that know when to shut up and let the person do speak, right? So okay. it's, a, it's a balance between, the, between them both. As many of you know, we have resisted the notion of paid sponsorships so that we can use these in-between moments to share people, organizations, and social impact initiatives that we believe are so important and driving change around the world. It is in this spirit that we wanted to share Harlem's Fashion Rose new nonprofit, which we are excited to contribute to and to share with you. Systemic barriers, financial, racial, and social, have existed in the fashion industry since its inception. This has caused talented creators to be overlooked, leading to decades of missed opportunity and marginalization. For 14 years, Harlem's Fashion Row, better known as HFR, has created a bridge between black designers and retailers through collaborations, pipeline programs, and experiential events. In 2020, HFR launched a 501c3 nonprofit, Icon360, to address systemic barriers and COVID challenges black designers face. Their mission is to provide fashion designers of color with resources for sustainable business growth and legacy development. In 2020, Icon360 received a generous donation of $1 million from the CFDA and Vogue. This donation was a business lifeline for over 25 black designers. Later this year, Icon360 will launch an endowment campaign HFR invites retailers to join them in changing the course of fashion by creating a new legacy. This important endowment will ensure that black fashion designers will be seen, heard, and supported for generations through your support. Please go to www.hfricon360.com for more details. Thank you. When you think about probably the most valuable kind of aspect, I guess, or one of the most valuable aspects of living in a pandemic was the ability to go outside and get off Zoom or bring your computer outside so you could just get fresh air. But of course, the sun's out there and it's it's dangerous and yet it's so wonderful and there's so much conversation about I do believe it, and I'd love you to tell me if it's right or wrong, that the vitamin D that comes from the sun is meant to be really, really good for you. So 
how has it changed your thinking about how to talk to consumers during a time when being outside feels like a real privilege or did you not even go there? Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. First, a little bit of Sun 101 that I can't help myself. Yeah, that yes, sunscreen, please, su- fix this. Su- yes. Sunscreen is not blocking out your vitamin D, right? So so no, no SPF is 100%. Even an SPF 50 is letting in a couple of percentage of you're getting enough vitamin D. So it's a common misconception. It's the reason that a lot of people give me that they don't want to wear sunscreen. We'd also tell you like you can also absorb SPF on your feet. So don't do it on your face if you're sitting outside, right? right? So, right. Like, you know, wear the sunscreen on all the important places and you're still going to get plenty. So myth bust one. Yes. We definitely also believe that our purpose as a brand is to get you outside, not keep you inside, right? So I actually, the spirit of our brand and one thing that Holly said that, you know, she said, well, I never wanted to be the mom that had my kids sitting in like full head to toe clothing in a hat under the umbrella at the beach. I wanted to be the mom that knew I had created a product that if I put it on my children, they could enjoy the sun and be out there and frolicking in the waves and be protected. And so our dream in life is that Supergoop is an enabler to what we say is living bright. So I want you to sit outside with that laptop. I just want you to put on sunscreen first. Yes, indeed. You know, we certainly had a moment last year. And and again, this is like one of the things I think is magical about this brand is that we could say, you know what, even if, you know, I see you have a window behind you. So I'll, I'll use this as an example. The UVA rays that are coming through the window, the blue light that's coming at me through my Zoom screen, all that's just as unfortunately damaging as sitting at the beach. So interesting. Um, and so that daily exposure is is just as important to protect yourself. So again, it gets back to the mission. It's like the purity and the clarity of what we're trying to do. When that lockdown happened, we're like, okay, well, I think we're going to be throwing out that spring break festival campaign that we have. It's very lovely, probably not relevant. And now we've got to teach people, you know, blue light had always been in our products. You know, it's a part of the spectrum of light, right? So just because, you know, we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And it goes deeper into your skin and it is often considered one of the key causes of hyperpigmentation. So it's a ray, just the way the sun is a ray or an infrared is a ray, you know, it's a... I'm way out over my skis. My head of PD should be here explaining that. But if she were here, she would say to you that the waves actually, blue light waves go deeper into your skin than just regular light. So all those age spots are well. Like the sun, the sun is still yeah the, exacerbated. Yeah, I mean the sun is still the number one culprit. I feel like I want to run right away yes, right now. And that's why every so you know every single day <laughs> it's our motto. There's a reason for it. It's not just for kicks. It's because it it is incidental exposure over time, not the beach. That is the source of of skin cancer. And it's also the source of the things that, you know, as we get older, we maybe are not as much in love with in terms of what happens to our skin. And so I've been an SPF wearer for that reason ever since my clinic training when I said, oh, what, what, what? You know, so if I wear sunscreen, I've got, you know, and I'm a, I'm a Most redhead. Most of us have so no idea. No idea. Right? So still so much work to do. I mean, we've had such an amazing run, but all I see is the path forward and the opportunity ahead. So we're excited about it. But what point do you put on your sunscreen after your serum and your lotion and, or does your sunscreen become your face cream? Like it depends on what super goop product you try um, and which one you find in love with. And so we have, we have a serum, we have a moisturizer, we have a primer, we have a spray. There's different reasons for all of them. You know, the general rule of thumb, if you're using, dare I say, basic, or but I don't, you know, I don't believe in basic because it's it's the last step in your skincare routine right before if you're going to wear makeup, you'd be wearing makeup. And if, if not, then that's great too. So that's what, you know, but that would be the typical answer. But we we came out with a product this year called Daily Dose, which is a vitamin C serum with SPF, first of its kind. And you'd use that the way you would any other serum. So we actually really believe that layering is the best thing to do because none of us put on enough, right? So, you know, the little pump that I put in my hands, I need to be using three or four times that. And so rather than glopping on a ton of the same thing, the best way to do it is to what we call SPF wardrobe. So, you know, you put on different layers of clothing, you put on different layers of SPF. Love to talk uh, about your teams. So how many people work at Supergoop? 
We're about 60 now. Yeah. And by next week, I might mean 65, but we're growing pretty fast. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And how do you think about marketing? And we, we touched a little bit on, it's not digital marketing today. It's kind of digital is just a given, but digital marketing is changing. We see the entire consumer experience changing every day with new tools and fun tools. And how do you make those work? Like, how do you think about what's changing? And, and then I have a specific question about sort of Facebook and Instagram and things like that. Yeah, I mean, to me, marketing is storytelling. And so great marketing and great storytelling happens when you match deep, deep brand DNA, like a real sense of what your brand is and what it means and what you're trying to communicate with an understanding of the consumer and where he or she is and and what's going on around them. I think that part often goes not talked about enough is, you know, back to the the question that you asked before of like, well, wait, wait a second, I'm now I'm in front of a screen. Do I still need, you know, you could have ignored that and kept saying your same thing, or you could say, okay, now how are people living? How do I, why is my message relevant? So I think you need to have all those happen at once and done with incredible creativity and flair that I think this team is best in the business at. And that's what marketing is. And then there's different tools that help help you communicate that. So an Instagram post versus, you know, a TikTok creator versus a banner ad that is served as, you know, retargeting. Those are all mechanisms that help you do that. But if you got if you don't get that first part right, those are just manifestations of really understanding the first part. We spend a lot of time as an organization on that first part. What are we trying to communicate? How are we going to do it? What's the fun way we're going to do it in? The other gift that Holly gave us is just a brand that has just amazing breadth and depth and rich stories, like rich, just yes. just stories and flexibility. And you know how many brands can show up in a bathroom and on the top of a ski mountain and then at the beach yes, all in the at same, the same at the time. same time, and you know sell in all these different. It, there's just not a lot of them, and so that's what we have fun of, you know, and, and I, I say I'm a marketer, I'm supposed to be you know, <laughs> doing a lot of things, but I, I certainly, there's something about being in those marketing meetings and they don't even, they don't even need me. But when I get, when I get invited, it's really fun. I see so many leaders somehow making it about them and not about their teams. And I almost feel like today as we're, you know, facing this next just giant shift and how people think about work, not just where they want to work or, but just how they think about work. I think the backlash is just, is just there. And then there are that, you know, small group of leaders who really make it about the teams and make it about the consumer. But I think the teams in some way are your consumers as well. When I say that, what does that sort of make you feel? And how do you think about the leadership aspect? Do you think about it or do you just do it? No, I think about it so much. I think about it, you know, gosh, again, it's like, I think it is the only reason that I'm here. Like I said, I I don't need to be in the marketing meeting. They got that. The reason that I'm here is to think about the team. And I have the privilege of being the one person who kind of gets to think about everybody and I think it's the most important thing that I do every day. It's the only thing that really matters. And if I can get that right, the business will take care of itself. The opportunity for this brand is there. The magic of the, the DNA is there. We have all of it. But the reason that we've been successful is because of the people who have brought it all to life. And so finding those people, inspiring them, giving them opportunities, making sure that they, in all of their selves are doing okay. Um, and this year has really taught me that, that it's not just about who they are at work, but it's about who they are 24 hours a day that I need to think about and support. It's like incredibly humbling. It's a lot of pressure, but I've, you know, someone said to me once that pressure is a privilege and that's a, that's something that always really stuck with me that, that it's like this great honor that these people have trusted me with that. And it's also something that I, I don't take for granted. I get it wrong all the time. I'm very grateful that I have a team that kind of will go with me when I don't get it all right. Um, they know that I'm well-intentioned and, and it is, it's a work in progress. I think I learned very early on that 
it was a skill. Back to you, you know, you, are you born with it or, you know, you're born with it or do you learn? This is one I think you can learn. And I think you have to learn. I think you have to expect to learn. I don't think you just show up and like, oh, now I lead. I think I might've thought of that back in the day when I was trying to get like leadership experience on my resume and very convinced that if I just took on, you know, some, you know, whatever you could do, right? When you're at the bottom of the totem pole and I volunteered to do it so that I could say I was a leader, that's not what it is. It's not a title that's bestowed on you. It's it's the choices you make every day. And it's a sort of commitment to always being there for people and, and trying to get better at it every day. So, And it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. It's not because it is, it's a huge amount of responsibility. And you have to really want that responsibility. You have to want that responsibility because the buck stops with you. Yeah, I mean, that's what really what I mean. Everybody can do it but not everybody wants to. And that's actually okay. That's okay too. You know, I I think like back to where we started with career choices and all these things, I think the places where people end up not happy is because they do something because they think they're supposed to. And I think that there's room for everybody and you just have to sort of really introspective enough to know where you best belong and then I got some great career advice that I repeated every opportunity that I can. So I'll take this one, which is somebody, you know, I was kind of mid-career and they said, man, stop worrying so much about what you're not good at and focus on what you are. And that was the same sort of advice of, of like, it's very counter to how we're all educated, right? You know, you want to get an A and everything. And, but part of being successful is being like, is just understanding what you, what you're meant to do, what your purpose is and, and kind of trying to go with that. Whoever shared that with you could not be more correct. I mean, here I am many, many years ahead of you, let's say, in in my professional, you know, life, my personal life. And the one thing when I used to teach storytelling workshops to creatives all the time is sort of wipe out the idea of what you think presentation looks like and just find your own style just let's find that. And by finding that, it's the right thing to do. And you'll get that message across. And I think there is an individuality to leadership. I I don't believe that it looks a certain way. I think it's experienced uh, actually a certain way. I've often gotten asked, you know, what's your leadership style? And I always say, I don't, I don't have one. I mean, I don't know. My style is whatever the situation the person demands it to be. Um, I have a personality that certainly comes through. I think my team would agree with that. But my the way that I lead, I try and really think about who's listening um, on the other side. So I think there's an individualism to it in that way and sort of how it's projected and how it's received. Well, it's great point because in presentation, you find your style, you're actually able to listen and pay attention to the people who are actually listening to you versus the voice in our head, which often tells us what we should and shouldn't be doing, which of course is a distraction at best. So the world is beginning to open up. We hope that people continue to be more and more healthy and fewer people, you know, getting sick with COVID and things like that. But moreover, as people enter back into the world, what is your thinking and what do you feel will be left? You know, there are so many people talking about going back to normal, which I think is personally absurd, but I understand what the meaning is behind that. But do you think there'll be new guiding principles that people will carry with them? Or how do you think about all this? You know, I think you used a word before about your conference and this idea of empathy. I I hope that this experience has taught us all a different level of empathy. I think it certainly has taught me that. That's my deepest hope is for that to change. I kind of hope that I start to get to go <laughs> do some of the things that are quote, quote unquote normal from a physical sense. Of course, but I think, of I course. think I will perceive the world from a deeper sense of what has that person that I'm standing next to been through and an understanding that I don't know, you know, I don't really know and I've got to learn and and not just the people that are in my immediate circle, but the what the world as a whole And I noticed something today, you know, I came on an airplane before this and I was in line for coffee, which, you know, must do even if it's, you know, an early flight. 
And the person in front of me, when instead of saying thank you, said, you know, I appreciate you. And I thought that that was beautiful. And I said, you know, I'm going I'm to start to adopt that. And then it happened again. There's something different about that, right? Thank you is very, you know, and look, that's another, you know, thanks, mom. Another very important lesson, please and thank you. But we're a community. We're all so tied together. And if we can learn that, that is an amazing gift and an important lesson for all of us. So that's kind of where I'm focused on and, and how, to your point, how does that change really listening to your people about what they want out of work and and kind of throwing away some of my old lady assumptions about things and really being open-minded about it. I'm really pushing myself on that. Lots to come, I'm sure. And to be clear, why I think it's absurd to return to quote-unquote normal is I just always wonder, what is that? Right. And then normal suggests it was all good, right? So exactly. And sometimes it might mean that a lot of that was just unconsciousness in general. And we just, it's what happens. It's the question I would always ask, even in the big companies, well, just because this is the way we did it before, it doesn't mean we have to keep doing it that way. So maybe the world is asking itself that. I mean, that's a great segue to something because now you are, you said mid-career or something like, no, you, there's so much more for you. <laughs> I hope so. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, so- I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like not, but do you have people saying that to you now? Just because you did this this way before, does that mean we have to do it that way now? Or is that not a conversation? I hope not because I live I live in complete and utter fear of, <laughs> of that. Of that. <laughs> so, um, so do I. So, but what I am trying to learn is that as a business grows, you also have to systematize things and you can't always reinvent the wheel. So, that I'm trying to train myself and us as an organization. I think we're going through a really exciting moment where there are a few things that it's okay to do scale. again. I mean, yeah, scale, scale, right? Like we can, we can do that again if it worked really well. We're balancing, right, this joy of creativity. And look, our whole business is about change, right? Our entire MO is to change things. But there's sometimes it's okay to repeat something. What I learned is that actually structure around certain functions or functionality or processes actually enables greater creativity. And most people don't believe that because you're not worried about what's going to break again. A year and a half ago, I brought in a new COO who's really become for Maya and I just an incredible, and the other leaders in the company, incredible partner. And I felt myself resisting when she came in some of these, you know, systematizing. And I'm like, ah. but of course I wanted it. That's what I brought her into the business to do. And what it's shown me in such a short period of time is it's given me space. No, it is. It's, and I think for the teams embrace it. Um, I thank you. Where has this been my whole life? You know, it's one of the sort of fascinating things about a really fast growing business is that you go through so many different evolutions and and what makes sense with one size doesn't make sense, you know, even a year later. And so it's, it's it keeps me on my toes for sure. So what's next for Supergoop? And I know it's, it's a very traditional question, but I think everybody wants to know, how do you and Holly and the teams start thinking about uh, the future? Clearly, at your scale, you must be getting some incredible opportunities. No one knows how to sell a business more than you or take one public. I don't know. But so brand first, like what's next? You know, Holly and I answer this question together the same way and mean it from the bottom of our hearts that we'll know that our that our work is done when we go from one in five diagnosed from skin cancer to one in 10 to one in 15. To, so what's next is always going to be about that. There's so much opportunity for this brand. And I think we say we say no to a lot more than we say yes to because we're so careful about making sure that everything that we do, we're able to do and do it well. But I just think we're at the beginning. I just don't think, again, that you come across a brand like this every day and that seems to have something going for it that the world really needs and is unique. And and we have this team that kind of keep wants to keep going at it. We're gonna, we're gonna keep going. Can't stop, won't stop is like. Holly's favorite hashtag. So that's how we roll here. (laughs) Love that. And then how long does it take to bring a new product to life from like idea to 
It depends. Yeah. I mean, it can, it's often many, you know, multiple years. SPF is a, not a easy thing to formulate with. It's a hard thing from a chemistry point of view. It's regulated. You can't, you're not allowed to cut corners. Right. So there's just built in challenge. Thank yeah, thanks. exactly. Like what we're, it's kind of important that it works. Right. So it can take a while. You know, the product development of this organization is something really special and, and we know how to make magic happen. So I don't know, we always figure it out. Uh, it takes a while. You know, these are not overnight, you know, put our name on something and kind of manufacture it type of, you know, when we say innovation, like we legit mean nobody's ever tried this before or even probably thought to try it before. And that's what gets us excited. Is there a future where when you really start looking out there and innovating and, you know, is there a future where sunscreen would take a different form than a cream or a screen? Is there, I know there's also kind of clothing that embeds sunscreen and, you know, how do you think about those kinds of things? You know, some of our favorite conversations are ones that are with germs and scientists who are sort of on the cutting edge of this. And and what's fun about our brand is that now we're big enough that people say, oh, I have this idea, but I, I need a brand to bring it to market. Will you guys help us, right? And that that's really neat, right? Because if you come up with the technology, it's only so good as you can commercialize it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to say. It's a category that Holly got into it because it was sleepy and she wanted to shake it up. So we're not going to rest on our laurels and say, oh yeah, we've got this all figured out and we're good. We're just going to keep innovating and keep doing creative things and we'll see where it takes us. So, And creating products that you forget that it's even sunscreen when you put it on your skin. That's the idea, yeah. That's that's the jam, right? Mm -hmm. Well, genuine uh, big, big thank you you. uh, to you, Amanda. And I can't wait to just, we have to make some in-person time. I really can't wait. And Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed our program. You can subscribe to Fashion Tech Forum in the Studio wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Fashion Tech Forum in the Studio is a production of FTF and Charts and Leisure, co-produced by my amazing co-founder of FTF and Index, Maya Wojcik, and Megal Janardin of Charts and Leisure. The program is executive produced by Jason Oberholzer and me, and our theme music was written and performed by the wonderful Michael Simonelli. Thank you again for joining Fashion Tech Forum in the studio, and I look forward to seeing you soon.